The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Welcome to the Movie Club Podcast, the bi-monthly podcast where we pick two movies and uh, watch them beforehand and then gather with bloggers, film gurus, and moviegoers, I guess, to talk about them. This is episode number 18, and uh, this time around, we are talking about Tarsum's The Fall, and I don't know if I can pronounce the other guy's name, the Saragossa Manuscript. What's the name of the director? There you go. So, um, let's just jump right into some introductions. My name's Sean from Film Junk. Uh, my name is Kurt from Row 3 and Twitch. My name is Jay from uh, the Film Junk and Documentary Bog. And I'm Andrew from Row3.com. And I'm Emma, random moviegoer. Uh, and I am Matt from WhereTheLongTailEnds.com. So, we've got two pretty interesting movies here to talk about. I guess, uh, as always, we're, we're, I don't know if we're always aware ahead of time of the connection. I think this time we were definitely aware of some connection between the two and sort of the story within a story kind of thing going on. Uh, we're going to start with The Fall. And I believe, Kurt, it was your sort of initial nomination to be on the poll. And so why don't you give us a little bit of an intro as to why you wanted to watch this movie. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure why it won the won the poll. Uh it it seems to have rigged over the <laughs> could be. Um it seems to over the past few years have gathered its own um cult following despite being lambasted when it debuted on the festival circuit in 06, like lambasted to the point of where the film was more or less Buried, and when you realize that it was Tarsum's own money that went into it, uh, that's kind of crazy. But basically, it's you know his sort of really um, his baby. Uh, he shot it in a bunch of different countries uh, and spent a lot of his own money on all the production and and so forth. And it, it is actually a fairly simple story. Um, uh, Hollywood stuntman is convalescing in a in a in a hospital and he befriends a little girl and tells her sort of stories which are amalgamations of all the sort of silent movies that he's worked on in order for her to get him morphine and uh i guess the neat thing about the movie is that a lot of images and characters that are in the hospital um manifest themselves into the stories and uh, so it's very very visual sense of storytelling well this was uh sort of a storytelling device that was borrowed from the film the whiz i believe way back in 78 <laughs> or whatever it was i thought it was borrowing from uh, bedtime stories with adam sandler well, it could be. I haven't seen that. <laughs> or we could just go back to the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's definitely 
Uh, I, I don't know. I guess uh, this was the first time that I saw the film. I, I missed it when it played at the Toronto Film Festival, and I skipped it when it got its very limited release, which was sponsored by David Fincher and Spike Jones, but it, it, it didn't play very long. Um, and I had been meaning to watch it for a couple of years, and uh, so I was glad it won the poll and uh, it gave a chance. Yeah, well, I guess we can kind of do what we usually do, and everybody can kind of talk about if this was their first time and what their initial impressions were. And uh, I'm, I'm the same as you, Kurt. This was my first time watching the movie. Kind of had been meaning to watch it for a while. Um, you know, uh, I guess Tarsum's only other film was The Cell, which I enjoyed at the time. Uh, you know, obviously the more interesting thing about the movie, I think, is, you know, the crazy visuals. Uh, and, you know, knowing that, and sort of seeing what he could do on his own uh, with a lot of his own money and just sort of a passion project. I was really interested in it. But I was a little apprehensive because, you know, these kinds of surreal movies, I was kind of like thinking, I don't know, is there actually going to be a story here or is it just going to be kind of like nonsense, you know, and just cool eye candy, I guess. And I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, I thought I'd heard comparisons to Pan's Labyrinth, and I think that's somewhat apt i mean that's kind of how i see it it's you know uh sort of a fairy tale wrapped in uh uh kind of a serious drama as well so uh yeah i enjoyed it uh it it was my first time watching it as well and i had been meaning to watch it and um i had heard that it was uh bad and so maybe i went in with low expectations but I, I th- it was better than I had thought it would be. But I don't, I don't think it was perfect. Um, but we'll get into that. Um, yeah, I saw this in the theater a couple of years ago when it came out, and with a couple of friends. And at the time, I, I thought it was excruciatingly dull. Like I, I reread my review today. I think I was a little bit. Oh, I was definitely harder on it than lambasted. it deserved. Lambasted, right? <laughs> And um, and as I watched it again, I, I, everything I wrote in my review, I still agree with. I just I liked it a little bit better this time, kind of knowing what to expect. I, um, I guess I guess we can get into details later, but for the most part, I'm not a huge fan of this movie. Um, it's it's just all right at best for me. I have not seen this movie before either, and was apprehensive to watch it because of. Andrew's lamb basting, but um, we watched it and it was pretty. I liked it. I definitely liked it more than Andrew did, um, and I think we disagree on a lot of things. But also, I can understand his viewpoint a bit. And so, when we get into that, I think we can delve further. Um, I We're going to throw it to Matt Gamble. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd seen this in the theater. I actually saw it a few times in the theater. Uh, Own the movie. Uh, this is probably the eighth or ninth time I've watched it. I absolutely love it. Um, I'll put it up there on a pedestal with a, a similarly uh, beloved classic, Lady in the Water. It's that level of, level of genius. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but Jay, Jay's saying but, uh, that because he actually likes Lady in the Water. But <laughs> I do like Lady in the Water. And it was a previous movie on this podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um but yeah, I, I, I actually uh, I think the comparisons to uh, Pan's Labyrinth 
Labyrinth is pretty apt. Uh, reminds me a lot of Tideland too. It's basically Gilliam in general. Story. What? Gilliam in general. Yeah, yeah. It's essentially a fantasy story told from a child's perspective, which is something I really enjoyed quite a bit, um, and also lets me grant it some concessions with the fact that its plot is is pretty thin. Um, but yeah, I I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. And I, I like the fact that we sort of all went around and gave different interpretations of inspirations that it borrowed from. Because, like, I I totally got Pan's Labyrinth meets The Wizard of Oz. But, Matt, what did you just say? A little bit of, uh, like, Tideland? There's, yep. Yeah, just there's so many movies that you could say this sort of draws inspiration from. And that, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. But it's just interesting how many different... Like I, re- I was reading some a couple other reviews today, and I was listening to the old film spotting. What did they compare it to? Some other movies that I was like, oh yeah, I didn't even think of that. Well, I imagine that the, the initial comparison would be to Zardoz, uh, not not only from the Wizard of Oz uh, uh, thing, but Zardoz uses that same Beethoven uh, piece over and over again within the film, uh, and I I don't know for some reason I always associate that. What is it the seventh symphony or whatever the the second movement um i always associate that with the absolute weirdness of zardoz and and the fact that they use it several times in the fall as well particularly in the opening shot um you know and it strikes to be in that weird non-existent amalgamation of a bunch of things i mean the movie exists in the fantasy it's just a a hodgepodge of his storytelling and the girl's Imagination, like when she gets Indian wrong, it's he's supposed to be telling like a cowboy and Indian story, but the little girl reinvents it as like a, a, an East Indian, and and that kind of stuff is all throughout Zardoz as well. I don't know if it's just her imagination, no, though, and his storytelling. I think you see both of their imaginations and both of their storytelling, which comes becomes a little bit clearer as the m- movie progresses. And when he was talking about the Indian and the squaw we were sort of seeing her her vision of what an Indian was, and she didn't really know what a squaw was, but I think it overlapped a lot, not just his storytelling and, and her vision, but both of theirs. Similarly, when he transformed from the character that was sort of from his imagination, and she transformed him to be him pictorially, and so I think both pieces are are there on both respects, both the storytelling and the, the visuals, which is interesting. And it made the messy seem both a little bit more messy, but at the same time it made sense. Well, particularly towards the end of the film where she doesn't like where the story's going, so she just inserts right. herself. And then there's almost like a, a, you know, it's his guilt is driving the story on one end and her hope is driving the story on the other and they just continue to grind against each other. I think that's actually the strongest and most interesting element in the movie is that, um, you know, who's really in control. I mean, obviously Tarsum is the, the, the writer overlapping it, but the way he's got these two internal drivers crashing into each other and visualizing it and you as a viewer kind of are, are operating at a bunch of different levels on how you're taking in the story. I, I can't think exactly. of too many movies that do that, and I think this movie does it really well. 
Right, and similarly with the way that they dealt with these sort of emotional and the, and the upheaval and kind of especially the ending, the tragicness of it, and juxtaposed with the sort of silliness of what really sort of did it for me was when um, the character, um, what is the the evil guy's name? Governor. Governor what? Odious. Odious. Count. Odious. Wasn't it Count? When yeah, whatever. Yeah, when we see him as the the other sort of film star and he leans against the the sword on accident sort of that it's tragic but really funny at the same time and I like that paradox and it kind of plays on that sense of you know the little girl and his issues and then the sort of emotion of the whole thing and then this the funniness of that was awesome and sad and weird all at the same time, and I liked that, all the mixing together. I thought that was actually really effective, uh, that that sort of struggle at the end where he's trying to tell the story one way and she wants to change the story. Like in Pan's Labyrinth, I kind of remember people, one of the problems people had with sort of the, the fantasy element of that movie is that they they didn't really know what, like, they didn't feel that there was much weight to those scenes because they kind of felt like, well, this is sort of imaginary stuff. I don't really care what happens in this imaginary world. Like what's, how does it play into the real world? And I mean, that's kind of an issue with this movie too, except that, that sort of that final scene where there, you kind of realize, well, he's trying to tell the story one way and you really don't want it to end up the way he's telling it because it's upsetting the, the young girl and so that kind of tension kind of makes it i don't know it gives some weight to what's going on in the fantasy world so i thought that worked really well and uh yeah like up until that point i was kind of like you know the fantasy stuff is kind of it's cool to look at but you know i don't really know don't really care what's going on it's just kind of fun and that that kind of made it mean something to me so i i thought that worked really well Talking about the visuals of the fantasy stuff, I mean, there's stuff in there that is cool and everything, but am I the only one who thinks that Tarsum's visuals feel a little dated? Oh, they're 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 sparse in a way, sparse. like they're they're very well. I mean, just in general, the like there are many moments in this uh, film that resemble like a Red Hot Chili Peppers music video from 15 years ago. Well, he is a That's, music video a, director, right? Well, of course. Director. I mean, he, yeah. And just the visuals in general, I, I think, you know, there, there's, it's hard to articulate, but there's a difference between interesting visuals that are completely original and interesting. It's like, wow. And then interesting visuals that are kind of just, um, sort of uh, eliciting you know feelings of what interesting visuals are like you just put slow motion on something uh you bump up the contrast you have these uh this composition with lots of negative space and stuff like a horse riding right across the bottom of the screen and everything but i mean the combination of his composition with the costume design the the uh actual like colors and everything it just at points, it feels like a dated music video, and it feels like, you know, like um, bad fashion, or <laughs> or like a some sort of like cl uh, 
you know, uh, I don't know, Clairol commercial or something, or like. I don't know. If, I don't know if dated is really the right word, but he definitely draws some very specific, like dates in time as far as aesthetic goes. Like the M. C. Escher's, he draws from. Art, like artistic movements, like the M.C. Escher scene with all the stairs, that's straight from an M.C. Escher uh, drawing. And then there's a lot of Dolly references, like with the out scene with the elephant and the sparseness of it. I, I agree, but I, I think there's probably equal as many thing, as things as that that directly reference Madonna videos from 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's that's kind of an interesting point, because I mean, like, it's this, he, the last movie he did was The Cell, which was 2000, right? Mm -hmm. So between then and now, he did just this movie. And, you know, this movie was a long time in the making. It, it took a long time, even after it was finished, to actually get into people's hands, like, to be released. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe there is something there in terms of when it was actually created and then that gap between, you know, when we actually got to see it. I mean, I just think that... Like, yes, there's no question that the stuff is, it, it's visually pleasing, it's nice looking and everything, but um, it, it does just look like visual art. I mean, uh, Matthew it, it, Barney? Like who's the, that? He's the guy that does the Kremister oh, films. This is which, so much better than... No, but it, 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 it's in the same... I mean, in whoever, you know, all the production design on these recent Lady Gaga videos are, are definitely in that zone. But I, I, I'm in agreement with you, Matt. I, I actually like all the use of negative space, and I like the fact that these are really standalone vignettes. They're almost like music videos, those little conversations. And, and the plot of, you know, all these guys on their quest, it's never supposed to be real or driving. It's always supposed to be like like a portrait, like just a, a simple portrait in time because they're only getting little snapshots together. I, I didn't have a problem with that at all. I, I, think that I don't know that I necessarily have a problem with it. I just don't think it's... Um particularly original or uh, i mean just from a visual standpoint it it just looks like the kind of thing that uh, uh uh you know when you hire someone to do a music video that's what you get you get people in a desert wearing a helmet with giant horns on it and feathers on their head and shit and <laughs> a fucking fan in front of their face and and you're done and it doesn't it looks nice and everything but it's just not it's not really inspired, I don't think. It just, it is what it is. It's <laughs> just, sorry, I just, it doesn't even make sense. I just wanted to say it. it no, but the, 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 all of the, uh, um, framing story, the, 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 the hospital and, and all of that is not shot like that. It looks very lush and very lived in. It's very stylized, but at the mm -hmm. same point, it feels, it's one of the most sumptuous recreations of the you know late 1920s California. I, I thought it was. I yeah, I mean that's whatever. That stuff's fine, but you know you go to this fantasy world, and that's where you're supposed to have your, you know, mind blown. And I, again, I'm not saying that the visuals weren't nice. They were nice, but you're they. Saying your dick's not hard. That's what you're saying. It, it doesn't want to make me fuck. I mean the. <laughs> The visuals are are nice, but they're just very familiar. That like in a in a you know the sort of thing where you know you you uh, hire a music video director and they're going to put flashes of white and speed ramping and and that's just 
what does it for people. Like there are things that do it for people and negative space does it and the flowing flags and drapery and whatnot does it. And, un- and unlike, the- unlike say, Mark Romanek when he did one-hour photo, I mean, he's clearly a music video director, but one-hour photo doesn't ever feel... Like right, and, video. and he still does good, video, clear, yeah, good yeah, visuals. Yeah. And he does the Nine Inch Nails videos, which would fit comfortably right. in with this style. But and I think the, the thing is that there are a lot of music video cliches in his imagery. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I think that the the a lot of the interest in the visuals is in the details, because obviously there's a sparseness, which we mentioned definitely, and that does relate to sort of a... A time context in our in our time and space, but it's the it's the little quirky things he does with the historical details, like the fan. We kind of get um, uh, with the palanquin and whatnot. We sort of get that Oriental feel um, or an Asian feel, especially you know again the elephant scene. But instead of a normal fan visual like you would see an oriental fan they have the fans attached to the headdress and he uses them in a really unique way similarly when we first are introduced to the characters um or like the story we see a a, like a roman type figure and instead of the what historically we see in little history textbooks or pictures of the the little plume that's on their helmets he has this just giant plume that goes from ear to ear instead of sort of from the front to the back like we would normally historically reference that because that's what we've been taught he sort of takes that little tiny detail and takes it out of context and again this does the same thing with the like the artistic historical references takes the what we kind of already know in history visually and just tweaks it a little bit and takes it out of context which i think is it's interesting in an intellectual way and it makes the sparseness of it and the sort of music video feel of it just a little bit more interesting and gives it a little bit more intellect and i would also say not to mention that yeah it might be a little music video-y but you don't see i mean name another movie that looks like this i think it is sort of inspired and original in terms of films like uh, most films, just they're not this surreal. They're not this bright. They don't have that contrast and definite arty. Like, well, all, like the whole Asian, of a painting. the whole like, Asian cycle, like the Zhang Yimou, once he stopped doing films to piss off the government and started making like the more pageantry, like uh, Hero and House of Flying Daggers. Um, what's the what's the other guy's name? Uh, he did. Oh jeez, uh, right. Chen Kaiga. The, uh, he 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 goes. Did you ever right. see that movie, um, The Promise? Uh, I mean, it got lambasted in China, and it looks just like a like this. It's it's so Reed overdone. Love it. Overdone. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, in the sense that it's supposed to be this little girl's imagination. I mean, it's interesting that you brought up Pan's Labyrinth earlier, and that they do make that little girl fairly well read like there's a little bit of exposition that says she's always reading fantasy stories they don't really do that with this little girl but i guess because 
you know, she knows you're seeing the movie through her point of view and she sort of well, knows. Maybe she's Curion, a, she, a big Madonna fan. I don't <laughs> could be <laughs> very forward thinking. Uh, but uh, you just get the sense from the movie that she at least has some notion of a lot of these things. And then, uh, like Emma said, it's her it's her exaggeration that makes it into a, you know, uh, costume designers wet dream. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, uh, I mean, it, there's no questioning that one of the biggest draws or, or aspects of this film is the visuals of the story sequences. And I just think with it being such a huge thing, it, I don't know, it, it does look nice, but um, in a, a, a cliched, like even talking about the costume design, I just think of like Queen Amidala in the Star Wars prequels. I mean, the, the in terms of the headdresses and and everything like that, the idea of infusing Asian or Oriental themes into things is is definitely nothing new. And I, not that I'm saying that this has to be completely original, but just the the imagery is is just very cliched. It's it's very very it was, 1990s. It was done better in Big Trouble in Little China, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> but I, I think that actually might even be part of the intent. I think, like right. with those fantasy sequences, the idea is to draw you in, is to be something comforting and that you realize so that you can handle kind of the barrage of imagery that's happening. I, I mean, the fact that those fantasy sequences are shot so differently than the reality sequence could almost, you know, almost kind of makes that case. Like, yes, it is kind of you know, music video. I mean, you know, it reminds me of like Russell Mulcahy in that kind of a totally in-your-face kind of style, while it's still being pretty minimal. But I, I mean, I do think that's the goal: is that it wants to call to these images and these shots and stuff, yet at the same time still kind of pushing you into this other kind of visual direction. And like Kurt said, even the bits that aren't in the fantasy world, even the real life stuff. Um, it's he's right that it's lived in and stuff, but it is still really gorgeous mm -hmm. and flirts with a lot of that negative space and a lot of that. There's like that one shot of the the light coming through the keyhole and the horse walking upside down on that green wall, like the shadow of the. Um, there was another shot of her the like doorway shots and like her in front of a window or her sort of offset with a door and a window that were really beautiful and really. Um, different like rich colors and didn't have that kind of primary color scheme that the um, imaginary shots did it had a lot of fullness and richness and um, difficulty as far as again as far as aesthetic goes that was exactly opposite of the imaginary scene and yeah. so he obviously knows what he's doing as far as that that kind of imagery, the whole thing wasn't shot like a music video. There was, you know, definitely a, a different space. Just as gorgeous. It's just a different kind of gorgeous. Right. I, I think. Well, I wanted to talk uh, uh, for a couple of minutes on the actual title of the movie. Um, I, I mean, the title has about five meanings, uh, maybe more. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which one's the most significant. I mean, it's literally both of the characters are in the hospital because they fell. So there's there's that. I mean, and, and the little girl at one point in the movie, when she's trying to get the bottle of morphine, falls again and uh, really hurts herself. Um, but 
tar- I don't know if I believe the director when he says he did everything without CGI. Um, he made this statement. He definitely didn't do the red blood soaked cloth without CGI or the or the tattoos or the right. the city of blue houses. But but anyways, I, I think in a way with the final sequence of them watching these great really risky stunts and 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 just sort of balls to the wall filmmaking uh in the 20s um he i think he's kind of lamenting even though he's making a film on the other side of the fence he's kind of lamenting that that time you know of just unpretentious storytelling they're not it's not trying to be art it's just trying to be crazy entertainment and it doesn't have to be structured it doesn't have to be formalized it it doesn't have to be codified um he's kind of lamenting the fall of that storytelling and and i mean because there's a whole montage at the end of all of these uh crazy buster keaton and uh charlie chaplin sequences one that i'd never seen before with two guys teeter-tottering on a car while the car is driving i mean and it's just and, and of course the main character is a stuntman that was doing that kind of stuff um, as opposed to the villain actor who was just the stand-in for the close-ups. Um, so there's, that's all uh, woven throughout the film. And, and not to mention the, the sort of the fall of, you know, all of these guys on their quests as, you know, because the, the main guy is, you know, basically his life has gone to shit in, 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 the, in the hospital. So uh, there's a lot of things... Well, it kind of makes you wonder why he then why he chose the aesthetic he did for the fantasy sequences. Yeah, I'm baffled. I I actually because that's what I thought the movie was about, but it goes about it in exactly the opposite way to make its point, which is I don't know if that's novel or interesting. It's just weird. I think it. I think it's just because that's his. That's what he does. Style. Somebody mentioning how kind of in that end, especially with that, that black and white sequence where they're watching all of those old movies, somebody had mentioned um, that wherever we were listening to before, how it was almost an homage to filmmaking and to um, like different elements of film. And after hearing you guys say that, I'm wondering if the concept of the fall isn't a commentary on how filmmaking itself is sort of suffering or maybe not suffering but i don't yeah experiencing a fall in the sense of you know people aren't doing those types of stunts anymore because that's something that andrew and i commented on right away was wow you know those people actually did that stuff and now it's it's all cgi and it's all you know computerized and whatnot and i'm wondering if he's sort of making a commentary maybe not saying one thing or another explicitly but just putting it out there that you know maybe this is kind of a you know film in itself in this day and age is experiencing some sort of fall or backlash of all of this computerized um computer graphics and whatnot in imagery well i I take it one further to me the 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 homage at the end is the final shot of um preston sturge's uh sullivan's travels where you have a guy that in that film uh, you have a a filmmaker who's going out and trying to make a movie about the salt of the earth and it's going to be a serious movie and it's going to have you know all the working class pressures and failures and difficulties but the film actually ends with the main character after going through the sort of comedic and 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 uh 
set of trials and adventures um, in a church where they put on like a like a Disney cartoon slapstick short and everyone in the theater is just so unvarnished laughing and enjoying it and i I mean the movie is you know it's trying to say that um you know sometimes art uh for art's sake isn't isn't as therapeutic or or relevant to society as simple uh, unpretentious uh fun uh shallow entertainment and i I really don't know where the fall lies on that because the fall certainly leans heavily on its own sort of you know metaphors and what it's trying to do it's not unvarnished it's not as unvarnished as i think tarsum had it in his head if i can if i can speak for the filmmaker like his simple story of these guys going on the quest i think he wants it to be a lot more simpler and a lot more old school like by old school i mean like 1920s keystone cops kind of era uh but i don't think he actually achieves that with the film and and you could say that that's a major failure with the film but when i'm watching it i i just in i did actually enjoy it on that very simple this film was not taxing me in any way and it's it, it's eye candy and and i did like the the stunt man and and the girl and i and i liked the way they talked together so it, it ended up working as a a very simple um close to even muzak kind of film and i don't mean that in a derogatory way i i mean it just does serve that purpose that's, that's a good descriptor Andrew and I were talking about how, to me, it seemed we were talking about Pan's Labyrinth and the concept of fairy tale. Most fairy tales are fables when we learn them as little kids. They're pretty basic. The story is pretty basic. But you know, and as the the verbal imagery, you, you can kind kind of conjure it up as a little kid to be whatever you want it to be for the most part, and it can be pretty rich and pretty lavish. But the actual fable or what you're learning is a sort of one thing planted on top of all of that other stuff and that's what the film reminded me of of all of this stuff that you can think about as you're listening to a, a fairy tale or a story but the reality is is that there's a sort of uh, a veneer of a lesson learned over the top of it and as far as the story goes the story is a pastiche exactly exactly it's interesting. Yeah, I kind of agree. Um, like, especially with what you're saying, Kurt. Like, it, it, like I kind of expected this movie to be pretty complicated, and it ended up being fairly simple, which you know is fine. But um, it's it's interesting how the story and kind of what's going on is pretty simple, but yet the visuals really dress that up and make it make you think that there's all this stuff going on. But kind of like the silent movies did. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the basic plots of those one real silent films are these guys get mad and chase those guys. That's the whole film. And then they just dress that up. They play out the scenario and make something like an accidentally thrown stone into a 16 minute entertainment. And I mean, this is obviously just scaled up on a massive level. But really, that story of the little girl getting the drugs for the guy that I mean, they could have told that in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But yeah. I think it's the right length. It didn't feel long when I was watching it. No. 
I still think it's a weird choice to shoot the dream sequences. Well, I mean, going off of the idea of, I, personally, I think, I, I hope the title, The Fall, just refers to a fall, because... Uh, I thought it was like, just the whole movie took place in autumn. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does autumn represent? Rebirth? Yeah. Maybe. Or no death? Spring is rebirth. It's interesting because just like in a fable or fairy tale and just like in a lot of those old movies, you basically get to see this this visual or, or conjure up a visual in your head and there might be just kind of an overlaying element of this is the what you learn or the lesson learned from the story. But the reality is, is we're having this conversation and a lot of those older movies and a lot of fairy tales, you can get into this really esoteric philosophical conversation about it. And so it kind of plays to whatever personally you want to think about it. And that movie, I think this movie does this relatively successfully. Is but there's no moral in this movie. There's you don't walk away from this movie having learned a damn thing. I, I, yeah, is there? Is there? I mean, you could call it a lament. For something gone, but I don't. I didn't walk away. Like it's not like an Aesop fable where there's a clear, you know, and therefore, um, you know, you shouldn't reach to get the morphine pills or anything. I you know, I, I. I think that, like Andrew pointed out last night, it's basically like don't. What did you say? Don't worry about like having a broken heart or. I bet Andrew said, don't worry, be happy, because he's the new white Bobby McFerrin. Bobby McFerrin, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that you said? Because in the end, he, you know, it's all about, oh, he has this broken heart and everything's horrible. And in the end, um, he yeah, I would decided say that the- it was okay. And then he, he took the locket and gave it, or he gave what happened? She gave it back to him, and then he threw it and basically said, "Go away." And so it's this concept of, you know, live your own life and and That's be right. your own person. And so I, to me, it had a pretty clear moral. And yeah, that and so- I, that sounds like something DreamWorks had come up with. Don't no, do I, drugs. Don't do drugs. I, yeah, no, I think the basic. <laughs> premise is it's no matter how bad things get you can always get back up and keep going and that's how the fall into it i mean that's a simple it's a very simple story very simple concept to it and i think people maybe were you know with the visuals just expected it to be this much much deeper film and kind of hold it against it for that and I, i don't think that was its goals at any point it was it was going for something very very simple but why do those visual visuals yeah you almost have the director shooting himself in the foot that's what he does so so you're telling me as a director that's like saying john carpenter needs to i mean it's bitching at john carpenter for making assault on (laughs) precinct 13 87 times i mean that's what he does it's not though because you you see the the footage of her in the hospital and he can do other things Right. So why choose to do the the visuals the way he chose? I understand the contrast, but the idea of being like going back to simpler times and people complaining that you know with these complex visuals they want a deeper story, is it not fair to say okay, well maybe that was a misstep on Tarsum's uh, side because he did put these complex visuals up on the screen and there's nothing behind them. No, I think that's exactly what he's that's that what he's lamenting though. is something that had complex visuals and had a yes. very simple story. That's exactly what he's after and that's exactly what he gave. 
Here's, here's I, Mike. Here, let me say something. I <laughs> Halfway through the movie, or almost all the way to the end of the movie, I said to Emma, I said, can you imagine this movie without... I'm, I'm torn. I said, can you imagine this movie without these visuals? It would be excruciatingly yes. boring. You have to have these visuals. On the other hand, I, I, I kind of agree with Jay that you've got all these amazing visuals that are so rich that the story just can't live up to it, and it ends up making the story worse, I think. The story suffers because the rest of it is so good visually that it can't live up to it. At least that's my feeling. Like, I, But the story's so. not really the, and, the point. You have to see it as a whole <clears throat> package. And I don't... I also don't... I don't mind a simple story. I, I think that's great. A simple adventure story, whatever, and that's being told, that's great. The problem is... And I don't even really need it very deep, but I just feel detached from all the characters the right. whole time. Like, I don't, you don't really get to know any of them. They make a couple little jokes, and most of them barely even speak. I, I, by this huge climax at the end where they're all dying and falling, I just, at that point, I don't even care anymore. I just kind of, I'm like with the girl. Like, I, this is not the story I wanted. It's, She's she's upset for different reasons than I am, but it's I, I feel the same. Like she's all tragically broken up, and I'm like, really? You, we didn't even know these characters. Yeah, but she's eight. But to a child, she's eight. That is devastating. I mean, I mean yeah. That's, yeah, these are characters, and this is her friend who's essentially killing the only connection they have. That's devastating. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. No, no, no. I, even even after she falls down and hurts herself, movie should matter. No, in the course of the story, that's what matters. It's not up to the viewer to dictate where the plot goes. It's up to the story to do that, and it but did. It's just it stayed true to its intentions. And if that pisses people off, tough shit. Deal with it. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> and if uh, that that's what a story should be, it should stick to its intentions, and it shouldn't, you know, fall apart just because it will cater to the masses. And I, I, I think respect it, the story of this for that. Its it, original it's, intentions, I don't think, do live up. I think it, the way the movie starts out, it's gonna. It feels like it's gonna be this awesome epic thing with all these great sort of, um, really mythical. Like, I mean, you throw Charles Darwin in there, and um, that's it's a running that's a, gag. That's a great idea. That's what I, it's, I think. It's a great idea. But then, and it, it put him with an Indian and an explosives expert. I mean, this could be a really fun adventurous action story and it's pretty fucking bland okay like, and if it was an adventurous action story then it's the league of extraordinary gentlemen which was a shit pile <laughs> i mean that's i mean that's uh, i i think we should chalk up a point for matt on the board for that i completely agree but really you can't make a good action movie with five interesting characters but that's just the thing is that not if charles darwin is there it's a story exactly. between a man and a little girl and that's all it's about. It's about their relationship that happens to ha occur in this story, this fantasy story he's telling her. I think it's pretty swashbuckling and Princess Bride-esque. See, and I and disagree. it's not at all. It, but I, but it I, feels I, like it's supposed to be. We compared it to kind of Shakespearean theatrics where it's almost like you're watching a play and you don't really get, in, like, really... You don't connect with these characters, you know, who sleeps with their mother and pokes their father's eyes out or what. You just don't connect with these characters, but that's not the point. The point is 
if there was all this rich visual and there was that much action, one, it's kind of expected because in this day and age, that's what we're used to, this sort of mass, you know, image after image after image after intense story, 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 story. And that's kind of expected. And to have this sort of thin storyline on top of the these images that are very rich but also sparse, I think, is is really interesting because it's it's not normal and I like that it's kind of refreshing in that sense um and like Pan's Labyrinth is very successful obviously with imagery and the story but to me it was almost it was it Pan's Labyrinth didn't quite work as well for me one I was scared shitless but also I like the I like the sparseness of this with all the rich color. It's just, it wasn't something that I was used to. Yeah, but as a directorial choice, Pan's Labyrinth succeeds beyond this because the whole point of this film is, is seeing a story being told from the, either the perspective of this eight-year-old girl or this silent movie stuntman. And who... These visuals, whose mind are these coming from? They're coming from Tarsums. Yes, that's true. And that's the problem, that he's completely stepped in and taken over that world from what should be uh, coming from the imagination of these two characters to indulge in his own visuals. I mean, you, you, you see, you know, her directly influence what's happening in that fantasy world. So clearly it's supposed to be their... Imagination. Well, well, there's some elements in there. There's the uh, the guy in the huge X-ray suit uh, who ends up being the template for all the stormtroopers or the evil guards or whatever. So there is some because uh, the, the guess, sexy black man was the sexy black man coming from the imagination of the eight year old. <laughs> He was he was he was an actual yeah everyone that appears in the fantasy appears in her real life of course and so so her in, in her imagination the black guy who drops off the ice in her world has killer fucking abs and is is topless. <laughs> He was walking around without a shirt on. I he mean, carries ice. I don't buy it. I, it's it's a bad directorial choice. If the movie is so set in the idea of of representing the stories of these two people, it it is way it's too. Not, the movie it isn't. Is an homage to film. That's why we're talking. About I, I think about that. Oh, I disagree with that. I think that's just like a massive. And <laughs> I, I I disagree. I think that's just reading into the title too much, but. Um, like clearly, well, I, I mean, yeah, 10 minutes of this movie, I pretty much say that his goal was to show this as a loving tribute to film. Okay. Uh, then the last 10 minutes of that film where they show these sil- the black and white silent clips, why wasn't that a visual motif? If the, if it's supposed to be paying Those tribute to black and white motif, right. but I'm talking about the storytelling. I mean, well, uh, storytelling it, it, in those is raised is thinner than it is in this film. The visual storytelling, Matt Gamble. <laughs> the visual storytelling. If I if I could just jump in here for a sec, I think like I see your point, but then I'm thinking, well, like what 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 else would he do? Like would he 
would the, the the imaginary world become like crayon scribblings for the whole movie? He doesn't have to do anything. Do what? Yeah. What was Pan's yeah, Labyrinth? I well, I just think it's well, it's a version of someone's imagination. Speaking, and no, I, the director's I, imagination. I, 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 no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on one second. Hold on one second. Pan's Labyrinth is good, but a better example actually is a different Guillermo del Toro movie, which is Hellboy Two, where when he's telling. <laughs> Stop laughing and 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 sit down and learn. Um, <laughs> Woman, drop some knowledge. At the beginning, at the beginning of Hellboy Two, um, Hellboy's like a little kid or whatever, and he's watching Howdy Doody. So when John Hurt comes in and tells the story, it's done all in this sort of stringed puppet mm-hmm. animation because that's what the kid was just sort of stimulated in that one, which sense. makes sense, and he grabs it off, and choice. that's why. I, I'm agreeing with Jay. I, I love the fall. I, I think it's a. I love the movie, but I also think that Tarsum does shoot himself in the foot because he doesn't. And, may, and maybe that's a, a choice, and maybe that choice is interesting in and of itself, is to not follow his own artistic rules or, or what you'd think is the artistic template, but instead. Uh, instead of someone like Del Toro, who logically grounds his images within the framework of the universe that he's building, uh, Tarsum just can't friggin' help being Tarsum, and and that's. I think you guys are all jaded with your film intelligentsia and name dropping. <laughs> just look D- at Guillermo the- Del Toro. <laughs> Hell uh, okay, too. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna drop another name, Matt Groening. It, it, this would be like if. If Matt Groening decided to make this deep story about these two people sharing this, you know, this moment, this story, and every time you cut to the storytelling, everyone was drawn like the Simpsons, and it'd be like, there goes Groening again, drawing everyone like the Simpsons. I mean, it's it's Tarsum's stamp is on this a little too heavy, and the the visuals he does provide are too similar to his previous work. I think the problem is is that you don't like his stamp, and that's your. No, I I do like I I like the film. I'm just saying, as a directorial choice, it's a bit of a misstep. I don't you do because you can apply that same filter to Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, none of I mean, you guys are talking about how all that stuff exists in the world, except all that happens in her imagination in there. Where the hell is she drawing any of that from? All the I fairy mean, tale books she's reading. There's nothing in there to to make it up the, into the direction that it's coming on. There's nothing. Sure is. She's constantly there. carrying there's around no her fairy tale, tale book. With eyes in their hands, walking around and eating fucking fairies like that. Go to Spain. That is Del Toro's. That shit's all over Spain. <laughs> yes, it is. That's correct, though, because if you think about it, when we think, when we're seeing her imagination, she has historical references in her head. She knows what a Roman is supposed to, or she has an idea of what a Roman is supposed to look like. That's but not what Romans look show, like. But exactly, exactly. That's what she. So she sexes them up in her imagination. She's seen 300. She's inserting the person that she knows from her real life into it. I mean, that's no, but do, see, no, no, no. Where you're missing the point. If I can speak for Jay for a second, is Please that do, Kurt. is that <laughs> is that drop a knowledge bomb? <laughs> is that she is. Uh, what she's grafting, she's she's grafting these people out of real life, and that's fine. But yeah, the the crazy amount of sexualization or whatever just seems a strange choice for a an eight year old girl. It'd be like if the Wizard of Oz was completely but, sexual, or more sexual. Her it's a movie I'd like to see. 
It's an adult imagination. See, and he's I a, never, he's I a never Hollywood stuntman. I mean, I, I never got that. I always got, and maybe, and maybe I'm completely wrong in my thinking about this movie, but the, I always got that he was telling the story. That's why you hear him voicing over. But all the bulk of the visuals, almost all the visuals, were from her imagination, which is clearly articulated in the Indian and the Squaw at the beginning, because but he's. I think the Indian and the Squaw example shows that it's both of their imaginations because he's he's saying it's an Indian and a squaw and so wigwam <laughs> exactly and so I I don't know why it can't be both and I I kind of see your point but at the same time I got got the feeling of it's both of their imaginations put together and this is why I think you guys are sort of imposing this film criteria on top of all of this that me as a, just a regular film goer that doesn't know much about all these directors and doesn't know much about all of these names I don't I don't get the I've seen the cell I've seen Pan's Labyrinth but I don't get the interjecting of the directors uh, it's his movie of course he's going to interject his ideas into it but at the same time I don't I don't get that that's what I think there was a point too where the, the, the storyteller, the main guy, um, actually made the character didn't have teeth or something. And the little girl's like, right. oh, why doesn't he have teeth? Yeah. And then, then he changed it to, he's like, because it's your father. And she's like, oh, he's dead though. And then he changed it. But so he was implementing bits of just like his how, imagination. She just changed certain things. How in his imagination, the, the hero or main character was one guy first and then. She interjected Roy into the story because it's part of her imagination. And I, I think a lot of that makes sense. It's just the the sexual sexualization <laughs> the sexualization of everything and in, in the, the I don't know when you stopped started complaining about the sexualization <laughs> of films because normally you're all fucking gaga for that crap. The well, you know, you're right, Gamble. <laughs> <laughs> They're too metro for me. I want them to be a little hairier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll uh, change the topic slightly. Uh, I wanted to ask what you guys thought of the uh, the little girl in this. Because apparently this is the only thing she's ever done in terms of acting. I I have something to say about this. Okay. Um, Was she overly sexualized? No, but I I mean, I think Tarsum is not the... uh, I, I, I would imagine... Like dealing with actors isn't his top priority and or his forte, and you can clearly see that with this performance with this little girl, they relied a lot on just pulling takes, uh, you know, between scenes or whatever, or just little moments that they've captured. And I think they almost did it too much. I think they tried to insert all of these natural like nose wipings and and her responding to questions off camera that were probably Tarsum saying something or her responding to someone else that they capture and then they try to shoehorn into the film to to show, okay, we've got all these natural moments. And that works sometimes, especially with child actors. But in this, it just, to me, I thought it was a little too much. I think they went a little overboard with trying to create a performance in the editing room uh, from the little girl. But Otherwise, I thought she was good. Well, two things. One, I, I totally agree. I think it's so obvious that I don't know if it's just um, like pulling takes or whatever, but I think they 
sort of gave them a general idea of where they wanted the story to go, and then they let the main guy sort of steer the conversation. And they they didn't tell the girl what lines to say exactly. It was it was almost like it was ad libbed. I, I but I agree with Jay a little bit. I think that's what makes the performance good. But the fact that it's so obvious and I picked up on it is a little bit distracting. And the other thing that makes her performance, I think, a little bit better is that I don't, it's her native language isn't English, mm-hmm. obviously. So you can cover up a little bit of the, if there is any poor acting, with just, well, she doesn't speak English very well. So I thought her performance was great. I just don't think it was a performance. It was just capturing her talking with this guy like that she would say he said something about save your soul and it was obvious she like she didn't know what she didn't understand what he was saying and he had to say it like three times and it didn't feel scripted at all it felt pretty ad-libbed and then he just sort of had to change the the course of the conversation from there I, i like that it is interesting to put such a naturalistic performance of the little girl into a film that is so clearly controlled visually production design and then somehow they worked in this very natural performance i think it actually is a big credit to the film even if like you said i i I noticed that it was a bit rough around the edges but that actually gave the movie a bit more character which all of the sort of rigorous control that tarsim seems to exert on the particularly the fantasy scenes but even the even the even the 1920s california scenes are are fairly rigorous in, 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 in the way they're shot. So having the, the girl's performance be so natural, even in contrast to the rest of the actors, was uh, it was offset, off-putting in, in, in the best possible sense. I agree. Again, from a non-cinephile perspective, I didn't really find that distracting as much as I found it charming because it, it wasn't something that I was used to. And I think like with all the nose wiping and her sort of stuttering and again with the non-native speaking, a, a child that doesn't have maybe the training of a child, you know, a seasoned child actor, those those types of things are, would be obvious nervous ticks, and so yeah, both of us, both Andrew and I, when we were sitting here watching it, noticed that, and it was very clear and obvious, but I didn't find it distracting so much as I found it really charming, because it wasn't something that I'm used to seeing, and I liked that, I liked that sort of freshness and the awkwardness of it, and Andrew had also mentioned that putting her arm in a cast like that oh, yeah. probably made her balance off and made her even more... Um, kind of childish and and fun in a quirky sort of sense that kind of bumbling. Yeah, almost. sitting well, with the. the I like the, the word. I like the word charming. Uh, but when she is required to act, particularly in the last act of the film, where she has to step up and take control because she's seriously upset with how the story's going, that was some damn good acting. I, I thought. I, I don't. Again, I don't know. I, I agree that Tarsum doesn't strike me as the type of director that gives a crap about the actors and, and, you know, they're just sort of things to be moved around. But whether it's intentional or talent or accidental, he does get a very convincing performance, particularly in the last act out of the little girl. Like I, I didn't find the the final part of the movie where she's interjecting or when she's watching the, the silent footage to feel like they pulled that out of off screen takes or anything. I think that, that part of the film is the best, 
part of the film that works the best is when she's trying to interject in his storytelling or everything. I think her performance, I'm again, I'm sure they probably had, you know, they were like killing her dog off camera or something and she was crying <laughs> at it. Something like that. Are you guys talking about the part where she was laying after she had the surgery and they were kind of talking at her bedside? And when she's crying beside the pool. When she's crying, and you're saying that was, you thought that was good acting? I think that, well, the fact that she was crying, I mean, <laughs> which I don't think was acting. I think it's just a child crying, but. I think that's interesting because that was the part where I was like, okay, this is getting annoying because that's where I lost her as a character because it, it got to be a, like so heavy handed and so overly dramatic and which is what the film is again yes, like designed right, right. let me finish Shakespeare no emotional <laughs> and I was like you know really okay something has to save this and then again with when the kind of lead back to, uh, the lead bad character leans up against the sword and kills himself it sort of interjected this kind of humorous tragic piece to her overly tragic emotional crying that I liked even though I didn't find her quote unquote acting whatever she was doing all that good or, or whatever because it was juxtaposed with that it just sort of saved that part of the movie for me I now, it was interesting here's 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 interesting um, <laughs> bring it, the interesting <laughs> bring it <laughs> that saying that 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 final scene doesn't work because it's so overdramatic and it doesn't work. I well, whatever that you didn't like it as much. Whatever, <laughs> saying that saying that you didn't like it as much. Uh, maybe it's because it was a bad directorial choice for Tarsum to allow so much charming, ad libbed. Uh, child stuff to get through through the rest of the film where he undercut the the drama melodrama of that final scene see but i'm not saying that it didn't work i'm saying that it actually worked because of well you're, you're saying that the actual scene where she cries was too melodramatic for you i no i did not say that what i said was she was overly dr melodramatic in the crying which didn't work until they cut to that shot where the bad character leaned against the sword, and then I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense, and it saved it for me, the juxtaposition of the melodrama with the kind of quirkiness of his death. But I think the melodrama might have worked if it was carried through the entire film. If he, if there wasn't that kind of quirky, hilarious death of... Well, I mean... In the death aside, I'm talking about the crying of the child. You can't... You can't <laughs> Okay, so the, you think the crying child was good acting, is what you're telling me. I, I don't think child actors act good yeah. hardly ever, but you, you, all you do is you get them to cry. However you have to do it, you get them to cry. You bring their parent in, and whatever happens, happens. Until he pointed out that that's kind of the point. The point was it was for it to be melodramatic, because... Well, I, I don't think the point was for it to be annoying. I, th I think the point was for it to be a heavy, you know, emotional scene. You're, he, she's wanting this guy not to kill himself. So it's an important scene. And, and I do think that it was a, a bad directorial choice for him to allow so much sort of... Uh, charm. Yeah, charm and, and uh, f you know, free ad-libbing throughout the rest of the film if it's supposed to be this sort of uh, controlled 
you know, like you said before, like everything else is so controlled and so uh, particular, except for her performance, and it might that's, undercut that's it at the, the end. At, at that point, that's when everything kind of starts coming together. The real world and the, the imaginary world become too much. It all be, kind of comes together and becomes too much. And at that point, her the sort of charm and and <clears throat> fun of her the acting in the rest of the movie kind of comes to yeah thank you exactly <laughs> kind of comes the to innocence. a head and then it becomes this again this sort of Shakespearean melodrama with kind of quirkiness and it, it's it's interesting I, I think it's I find it I found that entertaining and I'm not saying it's bad I just annoying kept, yeah if that kept up with her kind of crying and whining and crying and whining and him crying and whining and crying and whining, where did that fit in with the rest of the movie until it's juxtaposed with the death of the bad character? Well, I, I don't know whether it's a f- whether again how much of it's intentional and how much isn't. I, I, I would actually love to hear Tarsum's thoughts on you know what he conceived and what he ended up with as a film, and it would I don't know maybe there is a commentary on the DVD, maybe there isn't, but they did film all the scenes with the little girl in chronological order, so changes here and there might be a function of her getting more comfortable with the camera or you know getting to be a better actor because this movie was shot over a fairly long stretch of time not not that she has a lot of other credits but there may be just some it's kind of weird here like it says that apparently over the course of the filming which was six weeks she grew taller her english improved and uh she lost her two baby teeth right before shooting began so i guess I don't know. Somehow that that was important for continuity. Well, what they're doing. I, I mean, you can you have an editor. You can cut a couple scenes of her wiping her nose. I mean, it, it, this is not something that can't be controlled. Tarsum well, looks at it and he's like, "Oh, look, we got her wiping her nose. Oh, look, we got her sneezing. Let's include it because it's natural and it'll make the performance that much better or whatever." And I mean, it's I a it's a choice. Was a little bit much. The sneezing was awkward and. Like multiple nose wipings. It's yeah, pretty I clear like though it that had to do something with the plot, but it turned out that it didn't at all, and that, <laughs> that was a little weird. Maybe if it was plot-related nose wiping, like she had exactly. a cold. <laughs> well, it, was thinking about her. They definitely did, you know, try and get. And it, like it's pretty obvious that they tried to get sort of a natural performance from her by not having her act essentially. And I mean, they said that um, Lee Pace, like the main actor. I guess he actually stayed in a wheelchair for most of the while they were shooting to convince people that he actually couldn't walk or anything like to that. To convince people? Well, is yeah. he crazy? I know. It's like it seems like it's going a little a little Well, it seems like they're going a little too far to get an honest performance from the little girl. Well, especially for but, this film. I mean, this is a film that you would think, you know, you could be a little more melodramatic or a little more uh, stylized in the performances. Yeah. But one uh, interesting little tidbit. Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay, this is just a little piece of trivia that was interesting. Uh, when she uh, misinterprets the, the letter E as the number three, apparently that's something the little girl actually did when she was reading something on set, and then they incorporated it into the story. So it's kind of like weird how 
stories about her changing his story in the movie, but the little girl actually ch- changed the real story of the movie. Fuck meta, man. Mind-blowing meta. meta. Yep. So there you go. Kurt's coming in the corner right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of... Go, t- go ahead. Of a limb ...and just allow you guys to <laughs> chop it right off. Go, 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 quick, okay. go. Um, quick. I Sorry, Andrew, I just want to interrupt for a second. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, got, I didn't completely... I, I don't know if I was completely missing something. I didn't understand why he was in the hospital. I didn't know where they were until the very end. He attempted suicide. No, no, no. I, I get that. But what I'm saying is, like, like I didn't, I didn't understand that he was a, a stuntman. Was that right away in the yeah, beginning? Yeah, it was right away in the beginning. The, the All that way. super slow mo, which actually predates yeah, the sort of intro to Antichrist. Up out of the- yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, that was clearly where Von Trier got that inspiration from. But was he in that scene? Like, I, I yeah, thought that was him. just sort of an epilogue. Him that was in the water. And I didn't, I couldn't see that. And he's like, oh, I fell. Oh, oh yeah, never mind. Okay, it. never mind. Like I said, I'm going to go out on a limb and let you guys just saw that limb right off. So, okay. Here, I just, here, here. I was a little confused about that too, Andrew, I'll admit. I didn't get the, I didn't get that. And then there was the, the love story. I sort of got it. Like she left him for the other actor, I guess, but. That was awkward. It was just sort of, I wasn't quite clear on what he was doing there. I didn't get that it was in California at all. I actually thought it was like overseas and we were in Italy and that's why she had this accent and it was like. No, because her, like her mom was an immigrant orange picker. That's why she was there. See, I, I guess I was zon- either zoning out or it just doesn't... It which, which again, is... Maybe the plot was just too much for you, Andrew. I mean, this is, you know, a Byzantine kind of film. But, it, again, it is interesting that uh, Tarsum leaves a bit of that up to the audience when he, again, I um, again, I may be completely wrong on this, but I, I believe that he was trying to go back to a sort of unpretentious everything is completely provided for you you know sort of again how films were made in the 20s where you know not only would they have the actor you know overact because that was the style but then they would throw intertitles and all and and underscored again and then and, and it was interesting that he does leave a lot of the thing like where the girl gets all of her imagination from he does leave a lot of the work up to the to the viewer and that's not a bad thing i actually like that in filmmaking it just seems like a very strange choice for this film well that's okay not not to go back to it but just hear me out okay (laughs) would this the the negative response to this film i mean the story is very basic the it it's very similar to a lot of other films that were received well received and um but the whole idea of these this storytelling I mean, not necessarily that it should be done this way, but wouldn't it have made more sense if all of the storytelling was done like a silent film or something like that? Like, is is that not more thematically appropriate to this story? I I did kind of think that montage at the end just kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I mean, that that montage at the end is so the opposite of everything he does with the storytelling in the film. And when she, I, I loved the image, like talking about awesome images, it's, it's so easy to just, you know, show a fucking desert and frame the sky. So it takes up like, you know, three quarters of the frame and then have a horse running along the bottom. But the, the best visual in the entire film is the door, the keyhole with the 
keyhole camera where the horse is projected on the wall. And that's such a, a great image. And it, it, it doesn't really, it isn't carried through. I mean, if they had used that similar motif throughout the storytelling sequences, I think it wouldn't have been as much of a hodgepodge for people. And there wouldn't have been as much ammo for people to throw at them saying, you're just trying, you're just looking for an excuse to do your cell shit your Madonna video stuff. It just, and again, I like the movie, but it's just a weird directorial choice. It's a very self-indulgent directorial choice. And that image is awesome in that it, it is kind of like a camera. Like, it's, it's a camera That's exactly image. what it is. It's, and, it's and upside that's down. That's what the and, film is supposed to be yeah. saying. But it's a pinhole yep, camera. Yeah, exactly. And so it just seems to me like that would have been such a more appropriate direction. I, I don't know. So how would it, how would that continue throughout the film i'm i'm trying to visualize this well i mean look at all the characters that were in this story they're all like an an explosive expert i mean again they're all homages to film exactly exactly i'm i'm trying to visualize what you have in your head as to how exactly what you saw at the end of the film when they were all watching the black and white movies starring the guy the stuntman the zorro the all of those people that we saw in their storytelling represented on a screen in black and white flickering intertitles i mean it, it almost seems like a you know guy madden would have been better handling this material again you're name dropping i don't know who that is i'm i'm trying to he's married to madonna <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is your point? I guess. Saying the. I'm saying it's a. It, he wants an old school silent film. No, I don't want. I don't even want that. I'm just saying, it, it's all right to say, as a director, as a director, you have control over everything you you put in your film, and especially Tarsum because he's paying for everything. He's a very visual guy, so his choice, his directorial choice to shoot all of the story sequences the way he filmed them, to me doesn't lend itself to the story it, it lend its, lends itself to his own uh you know urge to create images that he always creates so if he kind of stepped outside of his own box his own comfort zone and said you know what it might be appropriate for this story for the the fantasy sequences to be in black and white to be silent to be Hand not cranked or something. Yeah, hand cranked. You know, we definitely would never have seen so, this movie. <laughs> so losing my religion, that's what you want him to do? He's paying for it. Since Did he direct that shot? by any chance? <laughs> I think Guy Madden directed that. His direction, as you mentioned, it's his choice, but whatever he wants in this film, he's paying for it. Why would he... Why would he want to do... And well, he didn't. Well, he clearly didn't want to, and it's my... You know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a it's my criticism as an audience member. He didn't want to what? He didn't want to cater to the audience. He didn't want to cater to his own story. By the sounds of it, it's, right? Uh, we we a lot of saying? a lot of people hold George Lucas to task for imposing a lot of unnecessary wankery on his prequel films because they don't seem to jive with the sort of swashbuckling adventure in space story, and they're loaded down with this unnecessary 
self-indulgent crap. And, and George Lucas is a good example uh, to compare because they're both essentially self-financing. Like they have full creative autonomy. They've got no one in there imposing anything on them. And yet they still can't even stay consistent with their own, uh, you know, what the story you know, calls for. I, I, I don't mind someone being experimental, but for me, it was a very objective opinion on saying this is what the story calls for. That's that's an opinion. According to you, clearly, him, some, yeah, feels feels that the story, you know, imposed this type of visual. Right, and I'm asking, I'm wondering what the reason is for that. If you, if either of you can explain to me the reasoning behind those visuals, I don't have twenty six million dollars. Okay, well, I'm Tarsum's audience member. I watched the fall, and we're discussing it on a movie club podcast. And I'm saying I don't understand the reasoning behind the stories, the the visuals he used in the storytelling. When it, it's it seemingly had zero to do with anything else in the film. So do you think the cell is him catering to both the audience and himself? I think the cell is the perfect uh, uh, arena for him to do this because it it's no, no, you dreams. You didn't answer my question. <laughs> do you think that the cell is catering to both the audience and himself successfully? I, I thought it was all right, yeah. Not how you thought. I can't speak on behalf of anyone except myself. Okay. <laughs> well, what what do you guys think I'm talking about? I'm talking about my opinions on the film. I know, but you're asking us to to speak on Tarsum's behalf. Right, and I'm asking what your opinion as an audience member who just watched Tarsum's The Fall. It was great. I think this is a great film. Okay, and as a, a topic of conversation, why do you think he did the visuals the way he did them? I've already explained that 40 minutes ago. Oh, well, what was. I, I guess I just tuned out when you started talking. <laughs> as you are wont to do. It, I'm. Okay. <laughs> no, you I, guys really don't see it as a valid criticism. No, I, I can understand why people might not see it, but the fact that you're completely rejecting the fact that we do and you keep hammering on it throughout this entire thing, I think is is a little over the top. It, I, it I, clearly I, wants the fantasy sequences to be fantastical, and that's what they are. I mean, they're over the top. That's what he wants that to be. And, and he's appealing to a visual style that was crazy over the top back in the 20s and a style of storytelling that was very, very simple. This is his modern take on that kind of filmmaking. That's where I disagree. I agree that okay, it's a valid... Okay, and that's, that's fine. It's a, it's a valid criticism. <laughs> right. It's a valid criticism for an audience to say that, but if he's making the film, if he's putting all of his money into it, then... Why can't he make what he wants to make? Well, of course so he can. Question, of course well, he can make what is, he wants to make. My question is: Do you think, not talking about this film, but talking about film in general, is film in general supposed to be for the filmmaker, the artist, and the audience? Is it supposed to be for just the filmmaker? Is it supposed to be for just the audience, or does it depend? Well, that's not that. That, that question's 
pretty much impossible to answer yeah. but everyone sees the film no in, in this in this context we're because I, I tend to agree with jay that you know a, a movie sets up a certain like if he goes out of the out of his way to set up a certain set of rules it seems very strange that he would break them if uh, I'm correct in the interpretation, and the, the the final scene seems to imply that that the interpretation of the film is a nostalgia for the sort of um, bygone age. But I guess you could go a little further and say, you know, in that era, anything goes. So that is sort of a get out of jail free card for him, and that he can do whatever the hell he pleases. But I, it, it's it's off-putting and 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 i i think it's a valid i mean you guys may disagree and that's fine but it is a valid criticism of the movie and i believe the movie did get a lot of flack because um it just it it refuses to sort of converge into any thematic coherence and 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 i think it's a very valid uh, as an audience member to expect a little thematic coherence especially if you're going to talk about the movie <laughs> on a podcast as an audience member i agree i agree and i i understand that you have a valid criticism but my criticism not really criticism but my question is is it okay for a director to do whatever he wants to do break his own rules or make up own rules and put it out there for an audience yeah i, I think it's okay as long as there's reasoning behind it i mean but his reasoning behind it is just to indulge himself as we mentioned before and, which is fine and and i can sit back and say you know what that didn't work for me i didn't totally understand why he chose to do that and it didn't work exactly that's exactly what i wanted to get to i like the idea of it being the fantasy parts what it would be like if they were black and white and sort of flickering and grainy and with the what do you, i don't know what you call it but the sort of dark around the edges nickelodeon mm-hmm. style <laughs> filmmaking i think that would be that would be kind of interesting would anybody I, like i don't know he might be able to make it work he might not well no one watched I the fall was, so it, yeah, it really, i don't think he would it, be it, I, he would he clearly this movie is not designed uh, you know, to have a 4,000 screen release. And I don't think anyone going in expected that. So I, I don't think he he made it look like a music video as a pandering thing to the audience. He did what he wanted to do, and that's fine. But I, I, I you would have got the same number of eyeballs watching the movie had he done something that was thematically coherent but and, black and, and white and hand cranked and, and, and flickering and, and, and all I'm supposing is maybe he wouldn't have gotten as much of a backlash critically if it was something that was more coherent but all I'm saying is maybe it doesn't matter to him because obviously the film is self-indulgent as we mentioned and so well I, I'm, just, I, I'm I would like to think he seeing as he paid for the film he probably wanted to make some of that money back but and, and I think any filmmaker they do make the film for themselves but they also do want people to I think any filmmaker is lying if they said I make the film I move on to the next film if you're making and spending all this time and creative energy which is fulfilling on one level and don't and, and, and then burn the film afterwards without mm-hmm. anyone letting it see it I, I don't I, it would take a strange person to want that so i don't know about that as a visual artist not a filmmaker but as a static visual artist i know a lot of visual art 
has that end and actually has that purpose. And so conceptually, I have a hard time. Not really, I, I get what you're saying, but I also see the other side of the coin where maybe if he had the money and he wanted to do it and he didn't care who saw it, you know, and he is that okay? No, because the problem is there's so many more people involved. It's not just him. That's a good point. He's paying for it, but you've got all these it's people a collaborative. on stage, screen. It's it's very collaborative. Those people expect they're gonna get some sort of. They're not just working for pay. They they they. they, they yeah. I, I imagine most people want it out there. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, just imagine all the people that are designing things under him, not necessarily he him designing everything himself, which I'm sure he did design a lot of stuff himself, but. It's not just his vision. So then that goes back to my, my question. Wait, wait, wait a second. So it's not... No, Jay just completely undercut the auteur theory right there. Thank you. Which, that, should, yes, which exactly. should be making Kurt's head explode. No, no, no. no I, you, I, I, don't, I don't believe the auteur theory trumps everything, but uh, it, it's certainly not Costume designed by Aiko Ishioka. Um, there you there go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Aishio Ishioka is a, an auteur in, within the world of costume design. Well, I, I don't believe that the auteur theory trumps everything, but it, it, it's foolish to completely ignore it as well. I, I believe people overuse it, uh, but uh, it's I, foolish to I completely ignore it. Do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, occasionally I... But, I, I mean, okay, just tan slight tangent for a second, talking about that, I'm sure when you talk about that, you don't, in your mind, believe that... Stanley Kubrick or Martin Scorsese is recording audio on set and or, doing the the set construction and no, not you, at all. Okay, I, well, I don't believe. I completely don't believe in the auteur theory at all. Okay, well, I mean, it, there's there's clear evidence that you know if you watched this film and didn't know it was a Tarsum film, but you were aware of Tarsum, you'd either think this is a Tarsum film or this is some guy ripping off Tarsum. His vision comes through, but it Absolutely. comes through un with people working under him. I know, but that also completely, and this I'll bring up with Saragossa manuscript, that's completely eliminating the story, which I, there's so few directors that influence actual stories. No, well, that's to me one but, of my biggest critiques of the auteur theory is it completely eliminates the actual screenwriter and the people writing the stories. It is entirely based on visual aspects. But you can have auteur screenwriters... Uh, I mean, the, can, the auteur theory there's a, doesn't... There's a big difference. Is the, uh, the, the, the problem with the auteur theory is, is it's almost entirely dependent on directors. Not necessarily. Like, there's people like Christopher Doyle and Charlie Kaufman, which I could easily apply auteur theory to understand films that, you know, it's another director, but they're, they almost become the auteur because, you know, it's more... Uh, you know, but basically the simplest way to, to, to say that the auteur theory is valid is that if I can identify without knowing um, a film by someone uh, or, or where that person is one of the author, one of the collaborators in the film, if I can identify it, then then there must be enough of them out there. It doesn't have to Except, be the director yeah, the problem is when you're talking like with Kaufman you can easily apply it to Kafka or any of these or you know or Philip K. Dick or any of these other people that they're drawing I mean when people talk about a Kaufman story it's almost always in relation to it's how it's a Philip K. Dick style story so at this point it becomes this kind of theory that is utterly dependent on something else no because I can tell because I can tell the difference between eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and and paycheck 
And and you also are kind of leaving out the fact that when a director is considered an auteur, he's he's choosing his material. That choice of sticking with the same theme throughout the film is is that, and yeah. not just he doesn't have to write it, but the fact that he's choosing things that are, you know, things that he's attracted he or she are attracted to. That is a choice. Like anything else. And, and again, that applies to the screenwriter, and that applies certainly to something like a cinematographer, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, they... Working with the same cinematographers, or working with cinematographers and then saying, I want exactly, it to look like this. They may be making the choice, but it's the cinematographer's vision. Under the guise can, of the director. Look, no, you can look out of, you know, a, a Roger Deakins shot film looks like a Roger Deakins shot film. It doesn't matter who the director is. Right, but does Doubt look like a Coen Brothers film? No, they're a totally different feel, but they look. Not, I mean, that's that's the thing. Roger Deakins, you can totally pull him out, or uh, almost you know, almost any other mainstream big cinematographer. You can tell. Look, at, I mean, Spike Jones's films look a shit ton like Sofia Coppola's because they use the same cinematographer. Right, but there's a kind of argument arguing about the uh, semantics of the word a tour, though, because you're applying it to director and the film as a whole and then you're applying it to just the cinematographer and then you're applying it to just the screenwriter well you know what the mission of auteur is that the filmmaker has complete control over exactly that's that's the idea of the auteur theory and the the second you start going well david mamet can make well no 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 see mamet script then you have you have already undercut the definition of an auteur. No, and I think that the definition of the auteur is particularly in the 21st century is is elastic enough that it's evolved, just like any scientific or any other type of theory. It, it evolves over time, and I believe in the you know a, a lot of people you know have shot a lot of holes in the auteur as director only theory, and I believe the definition has expanded and and it's not a perfect i'm not saying that it's a perfect thing and and it doesn't always apply but to to say that it's you know bullshit or that you don't believe in it is to completely ignore the simple empirical evidence that you can watch a film many people that watch a lot of films could find a film that they never knew was done by this director or they uh you know they were blacklisted and used a different name or whatever and you go oh hey that looks like so and so and and in fact it is um and that happens often i i'm not saying it's carved in stone between the definition of the word a tour and the definition of the word style just get rid of the word yeah Yeah, all it is is saying you can that movie is by that guy and so is that one because they both look the same right except then you have then you have an issue like like with M Night Shyamalan. Does Wide Awake look anything like any of his other movies? No, it's a shitty work for hire film. But if the auteur theory exists, even a work for hire that he doesn't give a crap should still have his stamp. Well, his the films he made when he was a fucking twelve year old don't look like The Village. Matt Gamble. Well, Wide Awake <laughs> was made the year before Sixth Sense. But should they have his stamp? I mean, why can't they uh, should? If it, if the auteur theory exists then his films, whenever they come across, should have some sort of semblance of his stamp. So you know, why, he's 12, why should I they? Mean, Jay, let's as look a 12-year-old, he's not an auteur yet. Please don't look at my films. <laughs> <laughs> but as a what? 12-year-old, a director's not an auteur yet because there's not of course he's enough not. stuff. I would, I would argue that a 12-year-old has is an auteur. <laughs> I, I, of course not. I, I mean, I'm... 
but that's what Matt's trying to argue. And that, I'm not trying mean, to argue that he's an auteur at that point, but I'm saying there there should be when you, no. you there should be things that you show up when you're working on your craft that mm-hmm. will carry through. If the auteur theory is true, things will be no. That's not true for though. Early on. As, Again, as a visual artist, what I did when I was 12 is nothing like what I did, what I'm doing now. And so that doesn't make any sense. We should probably move on from this. But the the simple (laughs) fact is, is that Matt has a tendency to boil things down into black and white. And this is not a black and white issue. (laughs) No, Matt, can you tell, you know, do you see similarities between Kubrick films? Well, sure. Okay. Well, and there are earlier films of his that don't look anything like the the last five or six films he did, but that doesn't I discount know. the fact that you can tell between... I, you can tell in certain segments of his time that, yeah, they look a lot or they have a very similar style and he uses similar, you know, he uses similar choices with music. And this is because... Uh, uh, similar beats with music. I mean, that's... I don't, I don't disregard that whatsoever, but the, the idea of the Artur theory is that a director has complete control over his film and has complete autonomous control and and his making and and making every decision and it is all based on their singular vision and then that singular vision applies from film to film to it's film. not that simple you're, you're yeah, over exaggerating the definition of the yeah, and and theory. what i'm no, saying actually, is is that the definition no. has evolved the definition is that a filmmaker has complete control over all elements of production. I'm actually reading it. Yeah, a filmmaker but, whose individual style and complete control over all elements of production Sean, gives it a person. Google it. <laughs> well, okay, let me let me point it, put it this way. The definition of an atom when it was first conceived is quite a bit different than what the definition of an atom is now. What I'm saying is, is that theories, whether they're scientific or artistic shorthand, evolve over time. cannot apply to a philosophical discussion, which is what the Atur theory is. Well, philosophy was science before the word science existed, but anyway. Sean's got something to say. Let me just, like, why, okay, we gotta end this particular discussion, but I don't see why it matters if the definition exactly matches or not. It's a term you can use to discuss film, and it, you know... People know what it means. Not though, because we're trying and it's not. But we have a general understanding of what is meant by it, like whether or not you know it applies to every single example. I don't think. Listen, listen, guys. Give me a sec here on the mic. I think what it comes down to is there are some directors that just they can go in and they can do what they do, and you know their films might not look alike. Someone like Ron Howard, so. That's Ron Howard's body of work. But then you take someone like Kubrick or Scorsese or whatever. But that is it, Ron Howard's auteur theory that he doesn't yeah. <laughs> he can't tell them. But then you take a director or like Wes Anderson, where all of their work has, shares similar things. And uh, to me, the word is basically separating someone like Wes Anderson from someone else who doesn't you know, have a, a, a very distinctly cohesive style. And that's it. So- Back to the original conversation, is that good or bad? Or doesn't it matter? It depends. It depends on from film to film. If if the film is shit, then yeah, it's bad. If the film's good, (laughs) it's awesome. (laughs) All right, final thoughts on the fall. Anyone? (laughs) Despite all of the back and forth... 
despite the fact of all the back and forth on the thing, on it. the whole, I actually liked the fall. I, had, I liked it too, <laughs> which is which is probably the most humorous uh, thing about this uh, about this thing yeah, is that Andrew, the only one that doesn't like this movie. Yeah, he didn't have anything to say. Obviously, <laughs> pretty much. I just think I it's not it's not too difficult. I just don't think it was all that interesting. I wasn't invested in any of the characters. I thought. The story was trying. You, obviously, you guys disagree, but I thought with all the rescuing the slaves and exploding shit and gunfights and swordplay, that it was supposed to be a sort of a swashbuckling adventure, and it was just pretty fucking boring to me. There's arrows and battles, and none of it was interesting except for the visuals, which I think are pretty amazing. Like I can just sit and look at those and go, "That is awesome. I like the look of that." Whether that takes away or adds to the story, we've just discussed for the last two hours. But um, for me, yeah, I, I was pretty bored. Is maybe a you little a little harsh. Is a little harsh, but I I guess the word is I just don't care and don't particularly care for that sort of Shakespearean. I think that's a personal issue. Exactly, it's definitely personal. It's just it's not interesting to me. For, I've said this a thousand times on the Cinecast. If, a, if there isn't a character that I really am rooting for and um, interested in and care about in a movie, it's chances are I'm not going to like the movie. And again, it's just me. That's just me. You can criticize me for that, but that's the way it is. I like to have somebody to root for, something to care for. And there just isn't in this. Well, I, I thought there was the rooting for the relationship between that. That's the central rooting point of the fall is you're rooting for the child to help the stuntman and for their relationship to hold on. And the conflict at the end of the movie where the stuntman is just completely back into suicidal give up mode and the child is doing everything in her power, even though she's hurt seriously in the process. I, I think that's. If you can't get behind that, that's that's a pretty you're heartless. Yeah, you're heartless. Pretty much heartless. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That, and that's why I love the film. That that's the central thing that that uh, that works for me. I, I can have criticisms with you know the things that we talked about of why they would use this style to do that, or or why put in the whole homage to the old style of storytelling or the the way special effects are used or all these other things that swirl around in the movie but the main thing that keeps me planted and the reason why i love the film is because i do buy that cynicism of this broken man kind of being held up and lifted up by both the child and by the simple entertainments that that he was making which are divorced from real life but drive and keep everyone uh grounded which is why you know, low art is 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 valuable, and there's just not very many cries out there anymore for low art. Uh, and uh, you know, like like Sullivan's Travels is is another. And uh, it's baffling that he used a high art mode to do that. But I, I do like the, the 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 plea for for simple low art uh, and, and and the value it is uh, for people. And and that's why I like this movie. All right, so moving on from something that was criticized for being a little too simple, we're going to talk about <laughs> Saragossa Manuscript, which is uh, can be a little bit complicated. And uh, I don't know how this discussion is going to work, because, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I was pretty confused about a lot of things, and I'm not quite sure how much I'm even going to be able to 
articulate from it, but, and I know, Andrew, you didn't get through the whole thing, right? Yeah, I think I actually kind of want to bail because I, I do want to watch the whole thing and just, it just didn't work out for me, so. Okay, so you're just going to. Yeah, we're, we're going to go watch a double feature of Cars and Jumper. nice so yeah we're going to bail out on the Saragossa but I look forward to seeing it and as soon as I finish it I will jump in the comment section at (laughs) movieclubpodcast.com okay thanks alright see you guys later yep see you guys bye see ya bye (laughs) bye All right, so uh, Matt, this was kind of your uh, your baby here. Why don't this is you my baby. why don't you give us a little bit of a background on uh, this movie and why do you, you want wanted... do you want the long or the short version? Short, <laughs> probably short, but oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, uh, I I I got turned on to this movie, um, and I use turned on in the Jay Cheel sense of the word. Nice. That uh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, by Colin Covert, who actually is the, the Minneapolis Star Tribune film critic here in town. Um, he's been on one of our podcasts over at Row Three, uh, and I had first to- I'd known him for years uh, from working through the theater, and I'd finally told him about my film site and what I was trying to do over at Where the Long Tail Ends. And this is immediately the first movie he's like, "You have to watch this." Um, and so I finally kind of tracked it down. Um, kind of looked up more on it and watched it and basically it melted my brain and I absolutely adore it it's it's this crazy crazy Polish film that is nested story after nested story and you it's hard to find books that are like this um, the only one I can there's only a couple I can even think of and probably the most recent would be Mark Denislawski's House of Leaves but this is essentially a film inside a film inside a film and so forth and so on. Um, and it it's just fantastic. I absolutely love it. And it's something I kind of raved about at least over a year ago to uh, Kurt and, and Andrew, and it's taken a while to kind of convince people to finally watch it. But I think it's totally worth a watch. Well, the three-hour running time is a little bit daunting. It is. It is. Um, and, yeah, it is a little bit tricky. I mean, well, we're, we're talking about it even before we uh, started this whole thing. And I mean, I think the, the first half is a little bit more straightforward and it's broken up into to two halves, basically. And then the second half is where it really gets crazy. Um, and I don't know, like, can, can anyone sort of uh, try to describe the, the story as far as they understand it? Well, I think I can describe it in two sentences, although, although the film is, <laughs> is, is far more complicated than that. Um, the, a guy is basically trying to find the shortest path from, uh, I don't know, France to Madrid, somewhere in France to Madrid, and his servants say, don't go there, the gypsies are crazy, and, and it's haunted with ghosts, and he goes there, and he is fucked. Over the course of the movie, in every possible way, yeah, literally and figuratively, uh, exactly. And um, it, it, on one hand, the story is just that simple. But what blew me away and and and, and melted my brain is is, is it's a great uh, turn of phrase. Um, is this movie throws up about sixty plates and. You forget some of them are in the air, even, <laughs> and then they just keep coming around, and eventually all those nested stories aren't just 
loops within loops, they actually start to crash into each other and sidestep each other. And it, it is just, uh, especially for that time in filmmaking in the early 60s, it's, it's about the most ambitious story structure. I mean, there's obviously films like uh, Synecdoche, New York, which I'm stealing right from Matt's wonderful review of 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 the Saragossa and um, uh, Inland Empire is is another one. Uh, a number of David Lynch's films probably come to mind, but it's just amazing that you could tell this story that way and and make it work. And 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 while I'm, I still could not explain the ins and outs how everything is connected i i need multiple watches um the food the movie felt right and i think that's what's important when i was watching it it just felt like these guys knew what they were doing i i would love to read the novel that it's based on because the novel you'd be able to digest it a little slower the movie is fast and furious and what where the fall weighed itself down with its sort of sparse and languid you know people standing in space what makes the Saragossa manuscript awesome is that it's so ambitious structurally, but it's body and fun and, and, and always sort of pandering to the lower needs of the, there are the best looking tits in this movie <laughs> that I've seen in 20 years. This movie works just on the tit level. Is that 20 years going right back to the release date of Beastmaster? It, it's pretty much. What's her name? Tanya something or other. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it. the one thing I will say is it, it had a sense of humor, which I was, I was glad for. I mean, it, 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 I did find it a little bit of a slog to get through at times. Um, but it, it, I, I definitely think the first half is a bit of a slog, but the second half is, is crazy. And it's just pure fun at that point. See, I, I felt the opposite. Um, I was really on board for the first half and then the, the last quarter I enjoyed, but the um, beginning of the second half of the film I thought was out of everything the one that I felt was the slowest. And I lost track a little bit during that point where the gypsy guy comes in and they start talking about... Then that, the raconteur? Yeah. Well, because the gypsy guy, in part two, the gypsy guy is essentially... The main, the main he's the framing yeah. story and everything that happens in part two up until the very end of the film is you're at the mercy which which gets back to my two sentence synopsis is of don't fuck with the gypsies like the, in a way that <laughs> this guy is almost like the malevolent superstitious and and your main character he's supposed to be the guard and he's got a very clear mission and he's supposed to be your rational entry point but you just you know, when you're coming at this sort of surrealist and the superstition and, and all these great fears, which is what drives all of the grim stories, Arabian Nights, all the great fantasy is driven by fear and, and superstition and afraid to go out in the dark, afraid to go in the forest, afraid to go in the mountains. And that gypsy and his, you know, sort of magician act of the second part, it, it's unclear whether or not he's malevolent. Um towards this character or not uh but i mean i guess it's just simply saying that you know that's what the gypsies are that's what civilized parts of europe felt like the gypsies are like the butt of jokes right so it's it's just playing on that angst and and i thought i thought that was really 
it was in, it was probably the neatest way to visualize that um, because it is like a wonderful like I think one of the characters, the guy that owns the castle is like a cabalist, which is essentially like yep. what like a Satanist or a, a magician or a trickster, and and the gypsies are always you know thought of that and and the whole film is a giant elaborate trick and I mean every character in the film even comments i like the meta aspects of the film where everyone is commenting like this this is so confusing it could drive someone crazy (laughs) you know i mean i loved all that and again 65 it just seems like really early for me for my my sense of film history for anyone to do anything half as ambitious as this and this one goes the high hog i can't think of too many films that even trump this it just it's like, yeah, it's like finding a Boeing 747 in 1895. It just seems very, it's it's awesome that it even exists. And with all your hype, Matt, uh, on the Cinecast and, and everything else, I was just impressed that it absolutely lived up to it. I think the direction is, is really good. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, sort of, um, style stylistically trendy things in the 60s that you don't see here like it doesn't uh the the camera moves a lot and quite interestingly throughout the whole film um and it it never really feels dated outside of you know a a couple things here and here and there um the the actual direction of the film feels not modern but at least later than when it was made um I, I thought it, it kind of reminded me of like a Coen Brothers film, uh, like the beginning of a serious man. Uh, I, I was just going to say that for some, like, I, I don't know if it's just kind of like similar sort of content of, you know, what, like how it's being told and stuff, but that, that totally popped into my head. And I mean, I guess kind of in a way, Rashmon kind of seemed like, you know, this seems like a more, sort of like evolved version of that movie. Because, I mean, they do kind of, the stories start telling things from different perspectives and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's it's definitely... It's a I little have, uh, Monty Python as well, I think. Yeah, I, I would think the Pythons were big fans of this movie, but I think you nailed it. If, if anyone was to ever have the cojones to try and remake this film, I would love to see the Coen brothers mm-hmm. take a stab at remaking this movie and there is actually a guy online uh who has a and i'll send the link to sean uh uh, like a saragossa manuscript fan site or whatever and he makes the point a very interesting point that david lynch's inland empire is directly involved in most particularly the the film they're making in 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 inland empire is a movie about gypsies and they cast the actor, it was his last feature film, the actor that plays the gypsy, the, the main narrator of, of part mm-hmm. two. He's in a bunch of Polanski films as well. Um, and Polanski also plays with that surrealist, like the tenant or, um, uh, you know, uh, so I think all these other filmmakers, like, like when Matt brought this up, he's like, okay, this was Jerry Garcia's favorite film and, Fun and Jerry so, Garcia and Martin Scorsese, uh, and loves this movie. And, yeah, and, and it, it seems to be like, it's like the, the you know, like the, like the, 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 the 50 people that, um, that, that saw the, 
original Sex Pistols show went off and formed different bands. You could, even though this film doesn't seem to have a huge place in popular culture, the actual effects of this film uh, are, are rippled in so many ways. It is lovely to go back to the source and not only see that, wow, that's the source of a lot of these things, but for it to be a well-made, completely stand-on-its-own, knockout, mind-blower of a film. Like, it's not like... Oh, I can see ads yeah, dodgy and and they pulled parts and extrapolate. Like I mean, this film is as good as any of the films that took parts of it and improved upon it. It's as good as it on their own. I, I just uh, I can't say more positive things about it. I it's just it's just it's astounding that it even exists. I'm still actually in shock. Yeah, and the other thing I find fascinating about it. I mean, this isn't quite a lost film, but it's pretty damn close. I mean, it was essentially. Garcia, Francis Ford Coppola, and Scorsese who put the money behind getting this film released wide and restoring the film. I mean, this thing was almost pretty much just lost to history outside of the fact that, you know, this handful of people that really liked it happened to be very, very influential and really into restoring films. Um, and I'm, you know, and that kind of thing has turned, you know, Scorsese has essentially done the same thing. He does that all the time now, same with Coppola. And it, it, I think this is probably one of the first ones they actually backed to do that. And I I find that even amazing as well, that, you know, here's this gem that was so close to being lost that that is finally kind of circulating around. And it's it's just such an amazing, amazing film. I can't believe that it was almost lost. It also explains how whack shit crazy all those Polish movie posters are. Like, you can actually see all the poster art if you go to the websites that that host, like, some Back to the Future or or, or the Terminator in it, and you have no idea what's going on in the poster. The alien poster. Yeah, you, you, you actually see... Where that imagery, because like you've got the whole Arabian Nights and the the sort of the princesses, but the, they're they're sleeping like on a bed of skulls, or the um, it just seems that I guess what a uh, like a, a a more modern, further west European take on gothic and and surreal and fantastical. As weird as that can be, it doesn't have the guts to go as just flaky as the uh, as the as the polish vision of this and that i don't know for me that makes the the fantasy work even better particularly because it never takes itself seriously it constantly is autocritical of itself and yet it still somehow manages to pull it off it, it it's completely the opposite of the fall in in how it goes about yet it's a thousand times more complex but it also wants you to have fun in every single frame i i I never uh, i don't can't think of a spot where i was bored because if you get bored there's a duel or there's a guy sneaking out the backside or there's someone spying on someone or there's tits flashed in your face i mean (laughs) there's the, the movie is is it's ambitious and it's aiming to stretch you and it's it's aiming to wreck your mind but at the same time it's also pandering to the audience and normally i get my back up about the whole pandering thing and i i'm still kind of flabbergasted on how this movie manages to have its cake and eat it too in in that well, aspect and not, not only that it does it it's that it it does it so well in both instances this is without question an art film yet it's also completely for the masses and that's 
that's what's so amazing about it. it it's 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 just a fantastic film that is able to to so deftly move back and forth between whatever the hell it really feels like doing in that you know in that particular scene or or in that just little stretch of dialogue or that shot or, or anything. I mean. It, it, this is at times a sex comedy, and then at times it's a horror film. I mean, you've got people getting their eyes ripped out, and then you have an action film, and then you have this weird romance, and you know, and all this stuff about the Inquisition, and it's it's just crazy, and, it, and the, it's done impeccably. And most of the acting is, you know, I want to say bad, but it does seem like again opposite to the fall where you you couldn't quite get the grounding on what the filmmakers were aiming for the acting is bad or or highly theatrical or or the characters are goofy or whatever but it seems to be in the spirit of the storytelling and that's why you know i love both films but you know if i'm going to sit there and obsessively watch a movie i'm going to watch the movie that has that is more fun to watch. And it also seems to entice me to further go down the rabbit hole. The, 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 the fall just sits there and it's beautiful and, you know, it kind of wears itself on its sleeve and, and, and so forth. But the Saragossa manuscripts, it wants, it wants to wreck you and it wants to cater to you at the same time. And I, I can't think of too many films that, that do this even now. Um, and yeah, Somebody, uh, like when we were talking about the fall throughout Shakespeare, and I think like this movie is definitely kind of Shakespearean, you know, in the sense that it is, it is going for the high and the lowbrow at the same time. And it's kind of feels tragic and like it's this huge cast of characters. And I don't know, it just, it has that feel. It feels like it has every Shakespeare movie thrown into one, but the one that came out most to me and I always associate the film version of this is the Ian McKellen version of Richard the Third um, it feels like the I don't know if anyone explicitly talks to you like you know like the breaking the fourth wall like like there, there Richard the Third does times. but but it feels like the filmmakers are just behind the curtain and they're constantly talking to you with like puppeting the characters like how many characters comment about something which is obviously a nod to the audience but it doesn't actually feel out of character it's a it's a delicate balance and uh yeah Shakespeare did that kind of stuff all the time and uh it, I, I I would agree with that I think this movie is um on the surface, it is a daunting watch. And I, I do think if there were anything to criticize, it'd be the running time. I mean, I didn't really have that much of, like, I, I wouldn't, I don't have that much of a problem with it, but it is long. And it, there are, you know, for, for something that's so complex, it's obviously designed to be rewatched and to be looked at deeper and deeper. And it works in that way. So, but I mean, it, it just, kind of looks like it's it, it's kind of like a, a big muscular shaved head bouncer that you're terrified of but then you realize he's like the nicest guy on earth and he's <laughs> got some interesting things to say i mean it looks like something that could be e- extremely boring uh you know uh just something that you know could could just destroy you in terms of like i was kind of you know especially having to watch it on my computer i'm like fuck this is going to be like, I'm, I'm going to kill Matt Gamble. When, <laughs> but I mean, I enjoyed it. I I think if if people were able to kind of look past, you know, the running time and 
you know, the basic, you know, subtitles and black and white stuff. Like if this were remade by the Coen brothers, I think it would be awesome. Like this is a movie. I enjoyed the original, but this is a movie I would be interested to see tackled, um, by them. Uh, but the, the weird thing is it's not far off from what I would imagine it turning out to be if it was done by the Coen brothers. Like they, they could almost just colorize it, shorten it a bit cause it wouldn't be that long. And if you swapped out some of the actors for modern actors and that would be it. And, and it would play, uh, you know, almost just as successfully nowadays, I think. Um, to a limited audience, obviously, but but yeah, if there's a definition of a movie that's like ridiculously ahead of its time, this is this is the picture you see. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, like you you mentioned the running time, I was curious. I don't know if Matt, if you know this, but what's what's the deal with the different cuts of this movie? I, I don't know too much about it. I just, I, as far as I'm under the impression of, is that it was kind of hacked up, and that's how it was distributed early on, and that it was it was Scorsese and Coppola specifically who said we want the full actual theatrical cut from Poland, which is the three hour version. Which is but there's the, like two or three ver- cuts out there, and and the other two are both drastically shorter. But the original cut, the original cut screened in San Francisco or somewhere in California in the 60s, which started, you know, which planted the seed for this. So I don't think they saw the two-hour version and said, no, I want to see the full version. They saw the full version, then it it got chopped up for, like, any further releases or or rep cinemas and whatever, but now it's back together. I I would imagine, though, I don't know. It seems like if you cut too much of the strands, the movie would... Yeah, make I no I, sense. I, I, really I, I can't imagine watching a two-hour version of this movie. You know, it would be like, uh, like I, I don't know, like Dune or or Brazil when they when they chop those films up, they they make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Even the long versions are hard to wrap your brain around, but the short versions just make no sense at all. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I don't know, Matt. Do you have any other? Uh, obviously, you're. You've probably seen the film the most times out of all of us. Do you have anything else you wanted to add? But? I've only actually seen it like three times. I mean, it it is kind of a daunting film, and it's one where when I want to watch it, I want to sit down and watch it. Um, Can I ask really, you, Matt? Sure. What what's I, I don't understand the movie. Like, and it's one of those rare movies that you can absolutely appreciate and get huge amount, even if I couldn't go up to a chalkboard and explain oh. all the plot mechanics. But at the end of the film. When the gypsy in his flashbacks actually sees uh, the 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 main character's father in the duel, like it actually when the when the flashbacks collide into the original framing story, um, or how the film starts, uh, is there a revelation in there, or is that it just? It's it's not really re- it, nothing is yeah nothing is meant to be a twist or anything like that. I mean they they let you know early on and that's kind of one of the things I liked about it. Early on you know the story they're telling is is nested inside the original frame story which is you know the the soldier wanders into to this house and a, and another soldier wanders in to arrest him and the one that was trying to arrest him discovers this book that's written by his father. And then essentially the movie is this book that they're reading. 
and from there it kind of becomes nested. I, I've kind of looked up some other stuff. For the most part, people believe it's essentially seven nested stories, um, and that most of the stuff is really just happening in in the main characters. I think it's Alfonso. I'm trying to think the gypsy, um, not the gypsy. The oh, sorry, the soldier. Polish. Yep. Alphonse, Alphonse, I think is what it is, Um, his dream state, and that over the course of it, it originally begins as dreams, and then it somehow manifests itself in reality. Um, And I I, I still can't really wrap my head around a lot of the stuff that's going on. And, And, like, essentially the first half, there's really only two or maybe even three nested plots going on. It's in the second half when all of a sudden all these others start creeping up when when the frame story completely moves over um, to the gypsy and he takes over and then he's telling essentially four stories at one time that all then resolve into the story of the father of the, well, technically be the grandfather of the original soldier that's reading the book. And I've just completely even made it even more complicated to people listening. <laughs> no, but that, that's that's what I got to. All of this is, I thought, all of like this three. was explaining the labyrinthine relationship as to why this guy thinks the devil gypsy women are saying they're related to him. And when they, when they give a pl- almost a plausible explanation, as roundabout as it is, that almost drives him off the deep end, which ends up with him possibly even writing half the book because they they, they say he gets the end so it's kind of like you know how you constantly you start someone starts a story and then before there was any printing press you'd tell the story again and again and again and it would evolve around the campfire you know the oral storytelling tradition and this is sort of this manuscript this this sort of prototype is the is sort of the written version of this but clearly it's all the ravings of a madman in the guise of um, of thinking of like that he's the sane of of, of of thinking that um, he's the sane guy and but but you know really it, it boils down to you know if, if if the peasants tell the nobles not to go into the woods the nobles probably shouldn't go into the woods and this is the warning story of that and uh, it's kind of that simple and that complicated at the same time but all the detail is what blew my mind is because I was I spent a lot of time probably wrongly trying to you know actually connect the dots into a whole picture but because it's a surrealist film it's not the whole picture that's important it's the it's the feeling and that's why ultimately whether the film makes sense or not in a traditional sense it feels right and that's the most important thing with any film I mean half of film criticism or someone justifying what's good or bad about the movie is that they watch the movie, it feels right, and then they use rational criteria to actually explain, you know, why this is an homage and why this makes sense. But if if you didn't get the movie, you could use those same criteria to say why the movie's a piece of shit. And I guess the, the Saragossa being what it is, it felt right, so I'm willing to forgive, even if it doesn't all lock together like some sort of you know, marvelous uh, puzzle box. Um, it just feels right. And, 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 and I walk away from the movie thinking, yeah, I want to watch that again. And maybe I'll understand it better next time. But really, I'm watching it again because I liked the way the movie... I just liked watching the magic trick in action. It's, it's not... I don't need someone to explain the trick. 
the trick itself is the reason to keep coming back. Yeah, and well, I mean, the stories actually do interconnect very well. It's more kind of how you want to interpret exactly for the main character how his relationship is to this story that's, you know, to these characters that are constantly interacting with him. Whether or not, you know, it's kind of left up to the viewer to decide whether you believe it's happening in his mind or it's actually happening. And it's, you know, it kind of is pushing you to saying it's most likely happening in his mind and this dude's a lunatic, but it is leaving it at least enough questions in there that you can do it. And, you know, and it is kind of cliche, but really for this film, how I take it when watching it is it's not about the destination where this film gets to. It's entirely about the journey. Like this is, this isn't, it's supposed to be just kind of a crazy fun film. It's, you know, it's a, it is the quote unquote thrill ride of the sixties. I mean, that's really what it is. And the fact that it's told in this kind of narrative form without the crazy visuals and everything is even more impressive to me. Like this is a fun film because it's ridiculous and yet it still is, seems kind of plausible and keeps you, you know, it, it finds a way to keeping, keep you interested, even though the fact the running time is, you know, three hours long and there's how no, you know, who knows how many different characters are just thrown in with almost no explanation, and you just kind of figure out what's going on, and well, that still finds a way to keep you interested and keep you from tuning out the film. That's like the Pyth- the Monty Python esque joke is that you know they meet some guy and he almost winks at the camera and says that reminds me of a story, <laughs> and you know at this at this point you're five stories in. I mean that's exactly the the sort of absurdist Python. Well, there's humor. there's a couple comedic moments that are exactly monty python like when he's the duel he stabs him and then he's just you know says i'm gonna go back and you know the casual (laughs) nature of that whole thing and and the uh poshek or whatever his name is the the guy who's supposed to be possessed by demons how he's all you know (laughs) hunched and making weird noises then he sits down and suddenly jumps into like this normal conversation terry Terry gilliam in the life of brian yeah it's clearly inspirational to those guys but one thing that annoyed me was just having to watch it like i said on my computer and it like uh because the the movie looks would have looked awesome if i wasn't watching like a tiny Uh, thing that I blew up to full screen so I'd like to see it you know either original DVD or hopefully on a Blu-ray at some point rep cinemas and midnight cinemas exist precisely for this movie I I imagine um, like as a three hour uninterrupted odyssey with fellow filmmakers or fellow audience members in a theater like this movie would be one of those things like mm-hmm. yeah, i mean i found that with inland empire um kicks way more ass watching inland empire in the theater even though it's shot on grotty basically just above consumer grain digital video cameras but because it's an odyssey in the theater apocalypse now would be another one um the runtime adds to the experience if you can get that uninterrupted zone of time which is why movie theaters are so important because they provide that like the whole home thing, it's damn convenient, but a movie theater means you've left the house, you're there, you're kind of trapped, you don't really have anywhere to go, you can't stop the movie, you have no control, and when it comes to watching a movie like this, that matters, and and uh, it's too bad that this thing doesn't get screened Well, that's why they often. should start uh, installing straps in movie theaters, <laughs> just to lock you in and make you 
sit through these catheters, three hour movies. catheters and <laughs> <laughs> feed bags. Yeah, I'll do you, think, do you think the addition of catheters in theaters could boost ticket sales? Probably. I yeah, I mean my only question really is how much better this movie would be on acid. Because, like, that's... It's just I, a I, given. Well, I will, I'll say this. Colin did tell me I was supposed to watch this high the first time, and I would <laughs> never recommend that because I really think you should watch it as sober as possible the first time. I want to... already crazy no, it, it makes sense when you're high. I don't think it will. I think <laughs> it will frighten you. <laughs> I want to know how much better it would be if Tarsum directed all of the uh, backstories. <laughs> Good question. Now there's a, why why is everything look the same when you when they why why didn't they make a distinction I know visual distinction Well there was one Tarsem-esque moment or series of moments in the Saragossa manuscript in, in that did you notice all the mountains in there they look like faces they look like squat like if if you go through and like the the one mountain that the inn is built out of, it looks like a squatting man, almost like an Easter Island uh, statue. And there's another rock when they're by the Inquisition, it looks almost like a gargo architectural gargoyle. And I, I I don't know, the movie starts playing tricks on you because you're down in its headspace. But uh, I don't know that I, I was I was actually seeing that and and i i don't know if i'm alone on that kurt, one or not kurt i think you were being mind fucked <laughs> <laughs> i was i'm mind massaged <laughs> grips of his brain just leaked out of his ear while he's watching it <laughs> all right well um do you guys have any other things you want to say about the saragossa manuscript it makes you want to fuck <laughs> Definitely. True. Definitely. A gypsy. Tit fuck. <laughs> Makes you want to tit fuck a gypsy. And that should be the tagline on the... Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Tantric tit fuck. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess that wraps it's, up. That actually kind of sums up the entire film, that ridiculous exchange. <laughs> So uh, that wraps up uh, the Movie Club podcast, episode 18. Yes, 18. So um, looking ahead to the next episode, um, it looks like the winner of our poll uh, was Grave of the Fireflies. So we've decided to pair that with uh, Wizards, correct? Ralph, Bash Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, yeah. Right, not the Wizards. And, and I guarantee you that the films will not... Uh, dovetail <laughs> as elegantly as the fall in the Saragossa manuscript is, but it is a, the first time we've done an animated uh, thing, so having a pair of animated films should yeah. go together. And if you, we made another film as depressing and soul-crushing as Grave of the Fireflies with Grave of the Fireflies, that would probably kill the podcast forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that will probably be in... A month or two, we don't know exactly, but stay tuned. We'll set a date and hopefully stick to it. More like six months. Let's be honest. <laughs> yes. So, um, so yeah. Any other uh, anything else we need to mention? Oh well, I guess we'll have another poll up on the site, and of course, we want to invite you to uh, leave your own comments about the fall or the Saragossa manuscript or at, the auteur theory. <laughs> uh, yes, definitely at uh, movieclubpodcast.com drop by let us know what you think and um yeah i guess that's about it so uh 
in the meantime, check out Film Junk, Where the Long Tail Ends, Row 3, Twitch, Documentary Blog. Am I missing anything? No. Um, Quiet Earth. Quiet Earth. Yes. So hopefully Marina will find her way back into the podcast realm uh, circumstances came up for this one. Yeah. So that's it for this episode of the Movie Club Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.